Wolf, and welcome to my first Chills podcast. Today, I speak with Consoli Nishimwe. She's a Rwandan genocide survivor, and her story changed my life when I first heard it 10 years ago, and I, I think it may do the same for you. Warning, though, it is extremely hard to listen to at times. Thank you for having me. My name is Consoli, Consoli Nishimwe. For those who probably don't know very well, I am a genocide survivor from Rwanda and I've written a book called Tested to the Limit, a genocide survivor story of pain, resilience, and hope. And and, and you speak quite often. I also publicly. speak about yeah. quite often about the experience. And then, yeah, that's what I do very much. And But my focus is more on, on women and, and girls, what they go through in conflicts. That was my main goal. To Which is how we met. That's how we met. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Many years ago now, we've talked before this recording about you being interested in telling your story. But I'm also curious, you know, with everything that's been going on with Black Lives Matter, with Mm -hmm. immigration, with (laughs) misogyny, basically you fit into a number of these hot button issue categories. I can't imagine how overwhelming it must feel because I feel enough with just being a journalist, a a woman. Like it's just... (laughs) There's like so many levels. Why don't you tell people about the genocide itself, just the duration and just a little bit of background? Thank you for asking me this question, because what's happening in the world right now, as you said, it's not very easy. And as a genocide survivor, you know, with my experience and what I've been through, it's really it it brings back all the memories. Um, That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Can you tell me how? When the genocide happened, actually, you know, for those who don't know very well, Rwanda is in East Africa. We went through a genocide where more than a million Tutsis and some of the modern Hutus were murdered during 100 days. And as um, in uh, 1994, in 1994. Yeah, within yeah, within 100 days. In so April to yeah. June, basically. Yeah. Yeah. From April, yeah. From April to July. So July. Yeah, so it was a genocide, uh, you know, perpetrated against the Tutsi. So I'm a Tutsi. So coming from a Tutsi family, I was one of the targeted also. And um, in my whole family, almost everybody was murdered. And also, you know, I lost my my dad, my my three younger brothers, and we were five kids in our in our household. And now I survived with my mom and my my sister. And uh, and also because of so many people know that during the genocide, rape was used as a weapon. Many young girls and women, even little girls, were brutally raped. And now we have more than about 200, they estimate they say 250,000 women were brutally raped. But these are the numbers we know, but there are many of them probably who didn't you know, nobody know. Yeah, I've actually seen estimates of 250,000 to 500,000 women raped. Yeah, yeah, rape. Yeah, but nobody knows because there are many of them and now many of them live with the consequences. They live with HIV, they have kids from rape. Many of them still suffer with the consequences. And myself also, because of what happened to me, I was raped. Now I live with HIV as a result. It's not like when we talk about rape, it was brutally raped and tortured in a, in a very heinous way that you can imagine. It's horrible. Like, you know, when you, you traveled around the world, you've seen in Syria and in conflicts and many other places, 
it's horrible when women tell you what they've been through it's a horrible experience and and it's hard for everybody to talk about for me um, at the age of 14 years old as a young girl I was completely uh, broken and and I didn't know how my life was going to be but when I decided to write my story it was a relief for me but I felt like I needed to be a voice for those who never speak about the experience and I know that it's still happening around the world so for me I, I, I felt like I, I couldn't keep quiet. My trauma, I kept within myself for so long. You know, I want people to know that what we've been through. And, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you, though. Uh, I mean, I feel like you've hit on so many things that I hope we can come back to. I guess, you know, I've known you now for years and you've told me your story a number of times and I've read it. And um, it still makes my heart kind of stop. You've also talked to me about living with pretty severe trauma as you would expect when someone's been attacked like that and been through what you went through. So how did you get to that place? And, you know, not everyone gets to that place where they want to be a representative or, and speak about this. So how do you, how did you manage to get there? It was not very easy. As you can imagine, I was a teenager. I was going through a lot of trauma and pain for so long. And in my mind, as any other person, when I came here in the United States, I felt, well, I'm going to forget and leave everything behind me. But that was not going to happen like that. I carried the pain with me. So they were living within myself. And uh, it took me a long, long time, really many years, to have the courage to even talk about what I've been through. But at the same time, I was being affected. You know, nightmares, all the pain anybody can imagine you, you go through within yourself. But it was almost like 15 years after the genocide. That's when I, I, I had the courage actually to even talk about it. Mm. Imagine how long it took me. And there are people who never, even now, 26 years later, they never spoke about it. For me, um, when I had the courage, because um, I went to, to therapy. And mm. okay. it's a luxury. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a luxury to, to survivors, actually, to go to therapy. It's not something a lot of survivors have been able to get so far. And not something that's necessarily uh, popular or even understood. Western therapy is not always interpreted in a country like Rwanda. The culture is so different that I I don't imagine therapy is all that widespread, the Western type therapy. Yeah, Western type, yeah, therapy. And and the thing is, the only way survivors now talk about even years later, because there were some research people, organizations that were created to be able to find a way to help some Mm -hmm. women they, the only way they help women who were raped during the genocide is to have a group counseling. Mm-hmm. This way they can bring women together who are going to, you know, whenever you see somebody who have similar experience like yours, somehow you feel, you, you feel at least you feel like you're not alone. I, I was just going to say, so in neighboring Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, I mean, I've been to Rwanda, I've been to Congo, yeah. but I've mainly reported a little bit in Rwanda, but mostly in Congo about women who've been raped. And I've seen these gatherings of women and, you know, there's a lot of singing, even clapping, dancing, singing, talking. And it just seems more culturally relevant to the women there that they that they want to share it together. And I don't know if such a thing would happen here. I mean, it's it's always fascinating to me. In fact, there's that great book by Andrew Solomon, Far, what's it called? Far from the Tree, something like that. Did you yeah. read that? No, I didn't read that. I need to read the book. Do you mind if I ask you just to tell people a little bit about what actually happened, what it was like? Because I don't think people today quite 
can connect yes. to something yeah. sort of so abstract so long ago, even though it feels like yesterday to, to people our age, maybe, you know, and of course to you? I, I think uh, many people, when they hear the genocide, they think people woke up in the morning and murdered their neighbors just like that. No, it wasn't the case for Rwanda or any other place. The genocide is well planned for decades and many years. And uh, in Rwanda, we had, uh, for those who don't know, we, we have um, we had ethnic groups, Tutsis, Hutus, and Twa. They're also known as pygmies. Yes, yes, yeah. And uh, during the genocide, the Hutus majority were the ones who were committing the genocide against the Tutsis. And it didn't just happen like that. I was born, even my parents, since 1959, we had a genocide before. Mm-hmm. But uh, many Tutsis left the country. They were living in many neighboring countries. And uh, it was a, just a small genocide, but there was also a lot of uh, hatred perpetrated against the Tutsi many years, uh, propaganda, hate speech throughout the country. And, and why? It was, it was about um, who was in power, right? Yeah, so the Hutus were in power because, actually, it didn't even start like that before, because we we were colonized by Belgians before, Mm -hmm. historically. And when they left the country, because they left the Hutus in power at that time, and the Hutus, um, you know, they made them, of course, what they did when before they left, they issued identity card, you know, before when they came in the country with social classes, and then into ethnic groups, and then they measured our bodies, our noses, you know, they tried to switch from class, social classes into ethnic groups. And you know, I, I read something actually yesterday about that. Why is it we call mm-hmm. it tribal warfare when it's when it's a war in Africa, but we don't talk about tribal warfare in Bosnia or anywhere sort of Western. I, know. I always find that really interesting, the way the way the West has needed to classify certain places in the world into ethnicities. And for anybody probably who will think, how do do people know we are all black? So, you know, we all look alike. How do people know whether you are Hutu and Tutsi? So mm-hmm. what they did, they made sure that they issued identity cards and mentioning Tutsis and Hutus and Twa. And whoever gets that ID, if they made you a Hutu, you become a Hutu. If you are uh, mm-hmm. And then you become a Tutsi. So because the way they decided it to kind of like, you know, make people feel like, hey, you belong in this ethnic group. You're... And then um, they made... Was it, was it also because when you say they did that, I mean, of course, some people probably didn't necessarily know because families have mixed over time, right? But yeah. also when they were delineating, I, I understand because there's a typical kind of People talk about tutsus as being taller or and maybe having different inner features yeah. and, and so were they delineating based on that yeah so what they did uh when they were measuring people they made they said oh tutsis are tall they have long noses they have uh, uh maybe you know they have a certain way they look so that's how they made people believe oh tutsis are tall they they have long noses they have look a certain way but if you look Later on, and someone who is considered to be a Hutu have an ID card as a Hutu. It was a, he was looking the same, like not different from someone who is a, who's a Tutsi. So, and because of how they made people be believe that. So, if you look at me, I'm not different from my friend who was who is a Hutu. So, mm-hmm. we are, I'm not even tall. So, I'm 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 <laughs> tall, but not too tall. So. <laughs> 
How did you know that this war, this genocide was starting? You asked me where I was. I grew up actually in the western province of the country. So it's called Kibuye. So when the genocide began, we were living there, both with my parents and my siblings. And for actually the genocide started throughout the country, we're having, um, you know, a lot of disruption and Tutsis were being killed in many other places throughout the country. And the persecution was so bad for so long, but we never thought it was going to be a real genocide because Tutsis were accustomed to being uh, persecuted. There was a hate radio we had at that time, RTLM, Mm -hmm. which was used Mm -hmm. as a propaganda. Uh, can, can you tell us a little more about that? Because it's a, it's actually the most, as far as I know, the most famous case of radio being used to incite genocide. Yeah, to incite the genocide. That hate radio actually was was part of, a, it's called RTLM. I thought uh, it, radio milkulin. Yeah, radio, yeah. Radio, which means uh, 1,000 radio. hills, which am I right? That is, is it Kigali or Rwanda that is known as that, the land of a thousand hills? Rwanda is it's called a country of thousand hills. Yeah, RTLM was actually founded for that purpose to incite the hatred against the Tutsis in the country, mm-hmm. and it was one of the radio that was it had uh, the the uh, what do you call the 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 journalist. I don't know if I I may use the word. <laughs> yeah, not exactly. Not exactly. Yeah, I I they were really horrible people because they seem like. They were everything they were talking about. It was hateful, calling Tutsis cockroaches and snakes, mocking people, some of the known Tutsis in the country. It was one of the worst radio I've ever heard in my life. The day everything started, I mean, everything was triggered by the, the plane crash for the president to some degree, right? And then didn't they sort of incite further that very day? Actually, after the plane crash of the president, they immediately said, oh, the Tutsis murdered him. They are going to start killing Tutsis everywhere. For anybody who probably would think it was because of the plan of the president, uh, no, actually, they used it as a way of saying they are going to start killing Tutsis, but they already, you know, planned a genocide. It's because immediately throughout the country, imagine people starting murdering their neighbors everywhere throughout the country. They used it as a way of saying that the Tutsis murdered him, but that was not. Tutsis were murdered everywhere. So that's how but we can I, But can I just go back to the radio thing? I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not comparing the angry pundits in America to Radio Milkaline, but mm-hmm. I, I guess, does any of the sort of hate speech you've been hearing, you know, like the right-wing radio stuff here, does that at all sound like what you used to hear? It's so... You know, words have power. And I know the, the words, uh, the hate words used in Rwanda were the beginning of inciting the hatred. For me, what I heard, what I used to hear like recently, everything I've been hearing, it kind of reminded me what I used to hear. Because it it's like a beginning. It's like a beginning. People should not take it lightly because it's a beginning of something. Just going back to how you found out what was happening. When I found out that we were going to be killed, all of us throughout the country, we were home. Of course, as a kid, as a teenager, in my mind, I was thinking, hmm, this is not going to maybe to last long. Probably we are going to to be home and coming back home. I, I didn't think our homes were going to be destroyed. Did your family flee from Kibuya? 
No, we actually lived from our home. We stayed in our own area to ask actually refuge in our, to our neighbors. And we had to go to neighbors and friends to hide us in their homes. But it was not easy for those 100 days because everybody, because of that hate we're talking about, we, didn't, we never knew the degree of what these people have been teaching on that radio, how it, some people have been taking it very serious to heart. And mm-hmm. some of them really allowed themselves to hate their neighbors simply because we were just who we were. And, mm-hmm. uh, and immediately, you know, as a kid, I, I had running on the street and going to find somewhere to hide with my parents and my siblings. You know, it was not easy. We came you were all together, though? We were all together and at first. And then my, my dad, I remember the time my dad separated from us is when we were discovered where we're hiding in the bushes. And my dad was uh, followed by the killers. And where we're hiding, we had to go to hide in one home. And they hid us in the, in the, in the house, in the ceiling. And mm-hmm. later on in the evening, the killers were saying that they have murdered my dad. We, we could hear people talking outside why we're hiding in the, in the, in the mm-hmm. ceiling. Imagine my dad was not even a dad only. He was a best friend. So my dad was a teacher. He taught their kids. He was somebody who was just being a normal teacher and caring. And to hear the people have murdered him mm-hmm. simply because he was a Tutsi, it was horrible for me to hear. But of course, we had to keep hiding. My mom had to keep figure out where to take her own kids to find refuge and weed in the bushes also. We were hungry. We lost, we didn't have shoes on. Our feet were swollen. It was one. It was horrible. It was horrible. How, lo- how long were you on the run for? We we hit actually it, it, within 100 days. Those three months, of course, uh, during those three months from a family of five kids with two parents, one of them was being killed until we became only two of us, uh, you know, three of us. So my three younger brothers actually were killed uh, later on you know, after month, my dad was murdered. That's when my, my brothers were were taken and, and they were killed, they two our destroyed home and they threw their bodies in the septic tank of our home. And I'm saying my brothers were not even like older. So they were little kids. They, they were, were little kids, boys. Little boys, age nine, seven and 16 months old. Imagine this little boy, 16, who was always on my mom's chest. Usually 16, 16 months old. 16 months old, yeah. And, and were you there for this? Did you have to witness this? No, I, I actually, they, uh, the killers came where we're hiding and they, they take them from us. And my mom, as you can imagine, this little boy always on her chest and back carrying him was snatched away from her. It, it was horrible for me to see my brothers being taken like ships and it was um it was sad to see that that visual myself it never leaves my mind and the visual also of me and my sister crying and my mom crying and screaming and and asking to be taken all of us it never leaves my mind so i'll live for the rest of my life they they came back people talking about how they murdered my brothers and I remember my mom actually 
told me, but I don't, I didn't remember with my own eyes, but some people were carrying my brother's clothes and blood and uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. To see, but this is what my mom later on told me. So, <sighs> yeah. So it shows you how hatred to that level can make people to, to, to want to kill children even yeah. children simply it's horrible it can happen anywhere can i uh, ask you a little bit and you know of course you yeah. you only say what you're comfortable with but um you know you said that you were raped i know you told me once who it was and and you told me an interesting yeah. story about that would you be up for telling that This not, is, not, not, you don't have to talk about what happened to you. I yeah. just meant the man himself. I thought it was very, that was interesting. Only what you're comfortable with, obviously. Oh, thank you. This is also one of the hardest things that was really hard for me to even talk about, even write about. But what has helped me to be able even to talk about it from my own mouth is because I was able to write about it. Writing was really cathartic for me so at least it really i felt like it was a relief for me and this this man was my neighbor this was not somebody who came somewhere i didn't know so this is somebody i knew very well as a kid and to come where we're hiding and beating me with a sword and uh, mm-hmm. brutally raping me not too far from my home it was it was horrible it was horrible it was hard for me. I thought maybe I wished he could have killed me, but maybe I wanted to be alive so that I can probably tell the world what we did. Uh, for me, I didn't want to be alive at that moment so when, when he tortured me and yeah, as a kid. and uh, it, it was hard. It was hard for my mom to see afterwards the pain of her daughter and Clean me. Uh, imagine for a mother to, to go through that. It was it was very hard. And I, the thing is, for me, uh, even though I talk about mine, I know many women in my country who, who even went worse than I went through. And that is something I have to tell you. As I've spoken to a few dozen survivors over the years, yeah. every single person I spoke to had said the exact same thing. I remember noticing that years ago and it's it's so I mean everything you just said is beyond what I'm pretty sure most people listening could ever imagine happening and to say that other people had it worse and for each survivor to say that it's always just blown my mind. The empathy. No, because I have a friends who whenever I have a friend of mine actually who heard my story, she was 9 years old and she wrote a book about her experience. When I when I read her story and how torturing what she's been mm. through at the age of nine and my I, I, I you know this this actually raises something interesting the idea of people trying to compare traumas I hear a lot about that and it's interesting that you yourself are sort of saying you know obviously that she went through something worse yeah. but I do think sometimes at least for my own PTSD I've had to accept that you can't compare them. You know what I mean? You can't say one 
person's trauma is worse than another's. You can say that, yes, outwardly one action may be more horrific when you hear it. But but for yourself, when you've been through what you've been through, it doesn't really matter what someone else can go through. For me, like you said, pain also is pain because it goes in the same place within ourselves. For me, uh, you're right. Trauma. Trauma is really a a lot to carry. Anybody, you know, been through traumatic experience, like you you said, in whatever you are. So it's hard. It's hard to, to really to live with it for anybody. You're right, no comparison, but it's really painful. Anybody goes through the, the pain, in, it's within themselves. And I think when you, when you share your story, I think it's important for survivors, all of us, to help each other, support each other. You know, whenever you share a story, somebody else can hear from from your story, like my friend who shared her story before she heard sharing my own story. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so that's how... We we, we, we we encourage each other. So I think that it makes me feel like at least I've done something to really make sure at least our stories are heard. Or anybody, anywhere in the world who have been through horrific or trauma experience, especially as women, we needed to, to support each other in, in a way of helping each other, support each other. Yeah, the, I wanted to ask you actually... Um... Reporting on such traumatic issues, different wars, different right. you know specific situations throughout the world, especially over the last ten years. I mean, I guess I'm going through my head of of asking you to relate all this, and um, as you know, I've thought about this a lot whenever we've talked over the years, but asking you to do it so publicly on a podcast, just part of me wonders is that is that horrific of me as a journalist? Should I not be doing this? You know, there's a, a story about, I heard from a friend, I've heard the story go around a bit about a guy who walked into a refugee camp in Congo and, and started yelling out, Have, has anyone been raped here? And it just always symbolized for me the, the really sort of indifference and, and mm-hmm. insanity of the, the way certain journalists treat such difficult mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. and delicate stories. So I just wondered if you've had any experiences like that. It's horrible for anybody who can come to a rape survivor, even say that because you 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 already deal with the pain that you don't have you, you don't know how to express the pain you're carrying because it's it's a lot of pain. Any rape survivor is really can tell you that it's a lot of pain you don't have the words to express how you feel. I've thought a lot about this, especially in, with the Syrian women I've met. The idea of, of putting sort of the wrong value on a woman she needs to be a certain way. She needs to be maybe virginal or pure or, or just somehow innocent. Yeah, or well, somehow you're, they kind of make you look like you are, you are not, I guess, a uh, woman, I guess, a right. woman. No, I think that's right. You're not, you're not you know, yeah, so, and then instead of thinking about this perpetrator and say this person must face justice and the focus is more about oh how we think a woman should be somehow your neighbor i could be wrong but i think you told me a story about meeting up with him years later talking to him somehow i uh, actually i'm one of the few i would say the few survivors in rwanda who when i was still a teenager i was able to actually able to actually see him in jail, where he was in jail. 
it was in a different province. Uh, there were some neighbors actually who found him and uh, they were able to, because he ran away from where we were living at that time. So he managed to live in a different province of, of country. So someone found him there and they managed to take him to jail to tell the, the local authorities there so that he committed the genocide and that he, he must be in jail. And that's how I was able to go to where he was in jail so that I can tell the people there what he did to me. And mm-hmm. I was still young. I was still a teenager at that time. And uh, probably I was uh, maybe 17. It was not very easy for me to even look at that face. And what did he say to you? He was just screaming because he couldn't believe I, I was alive, actually. He didn't know I was still alive. He didn't know. So he was angry when you showed he up. He was angry and screaming and yelling. And But the thing is, he 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 was, um, I, I was scared. I was scared even myself to be there because the soldier at that time who was there was writing, asking me what happened. He realized it was hard for me to even say what he did to me I, I tried my best but you and, had to say uh, it in front of the, the man in front of your and man I ha- and I had to say it in front of him Why? yeah was which was not easy for me gosh I, 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 I don't even understand that about how they could make you do that you know you're the first person to even ask me this and it was um it was horrible I think they they were not equipped at that time yet to know how mm-hmm talk to because that was the first time I guess probably they have seen a rape survivor coming and especially you know to say what the person did they were not probably expecting me to say that I guess also this this speaks to the justice system that had to be implemented with the um, special the mobile courts that had to come into Rwanda because the justice system was not equipped but yeah um, and it was early on at that time and now they know how to do it and they have gender-based violence. Now, so many things have changed now. So it was mm-hmm. in the early times that, and even the person who was with me at that time was was worried and say, no, no, thankfully for the, the soldier, he was kind enough to say, don't say too much, say whatever you can, just don't say too much. And I said whatever I could say, and I was horrified, I was worried, I, I, was, I was scared. Actually, I was even terrified to even look at that person imagine that trauma even to look at i mean i've been sitting here through a lot of this interview but especially this part with my hand over my mouth just because i'm just physically in shock that this happened yeah um, i never i never actually i wrote that in my book but i never spoke in my mouth to anybody like this explaining how horrible it was for me to face this man and did you uh, did you say anything directly to him were you able to did you want to I didn't want to. I didn't know how to even look at him because I he, he was so scary. I couldn't. It, it was scary. Even now, when I think about it, I don't know how I managed to even do it. It, it is an incredible kind of bravery. Yeah. I don't think that anyone can quite understand. I honestly don't. Uh, so, because I, when I think about it, many women never did that. Many of them. I, I don't really want to end in this horrible place of fear you know i just want to appreciate you so much you've been very one of the amazing people who have helped me early on to be able to even talk about this experience in a way that i felt comfortable myself to share 
you know, because there are things that sometimes you you don't know how because talking is not really something that I would say I'm very good at. <laughs> but finding somebody who listens to you, who know, who can listen to you and find, help you in a way that you can express wherever you can express your pain and how you feel. I think it's important. And I really appreciate you so much you've done. People should know that how incredible you are. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I really do. English is not my first language. And being able to find a person who helped me be able to even share my my experience in a way, in my own words, how I can express it and with empathy and love. And uh, really means a lot to me. Well, that means everything to me. Everything. I can't thank you enough for all of this. I'm speechless in some ways because I feel like while I've heard most of this before, it just, I don't understand how you can repeat it, but I appreciate it so much. I found a way to be happy despite all I've been through. I'm not bitter, <laughs> like how these people wanted me to be, like what the guy wanted me to be. It has been a long journey, but I'm grateful where I am right now. I'm at peace. Thank you so much to Consoline Machinway. Please check out her book, Tested to the Limit, music by Michael Hurst. I'm Lauren Wolf. Thanks for listening.